I'd love to begin today by asking you a question. This is an unscientific poll, and the good news is there's no wrong answer. This is a test, and everybody's going to make 100 on it. So I'm curious, in the room right now, or maybe you're watching online, how many of us, by show of hands, how many of you are readers? You, you like to read. Go ahead and put your hands up. If you're a reader, that's cool. Maybe you read, you know, fiction or novels. I'm a huge, huge reader. I, a lot of what I read is for research and sermon preparation and those sort of things. But I've noticed over the last few years, I actually really enjoy a good novel. I, I enjoy fiction if it's really well done, if it's kind of got a little pop to it and some momentum. And I've developed what I consider to be a technique or a strategy for how you decide whether or not to buy a book. Have you, I don't know how you, how, you, how you make that choice or whatever, whether you're looking online. How many of y'all read Kindle or some kind of an e-book if you're a reader? Let me just see. That's interesting. I'm, I'm an e-book guy because I can carry multiple books with me wherever I go. But this is a strategy that I developed years and years ago. I will open a book, and, and this is usually true, especially for, for novels and for fiction. I will open a book and just read the first sentence. The first sentence, maybe, maybe the first paragraph. And if the author has put a little juice into it and he's got a little pop and grabs your attention, then I'm in. But if that, if that first paragraph doesn't really grab me, I mean, I'm out. I, I will drop a book in the middle of it. If, it got, if the author's not really making it move, I'll drop a book like a bad habit. I don't care. I, I've bought it. Fine. Give it, give it away, whatever. But there is one person who I consider to be the artist of artists on opening lines of a book. And it's the same author. Now, it's, it's coincidental that this author, whose name is Larry McMurtry, also wrote the, the legendary, iconic book, Lonesome Dove. God's second favorite book ever. If you've never read Lonesome Dove, you need to read the book. It's not a Western. It is not a Western. There are some cowboys in it, but this is about life. This is about how the world operates. It's an incredible, incredible book. But it is not one of the best opening lines ever. Two of the best opening lines that, Larry McMur- that have ever been written were both written by Larry McMurtry. I just want to share them with you right now. This is, this is the runner-up to the greatest opening line ever. First sentence of the book. Quote, Mr. Deck, are you my stinking daddy? A youthful female furious voice said into the phone. Now, I remember exactly where I was when I read that. I thought, man, there's a story behind that. Number one, if she thinks this is her daddy, why does she refer to him as Mr. Deck? There's a story in that one. Why is she so mad and furious? And if this is her father, why does she consider him to be stinking? I mean, that, that, there's a story there, right? But, and, and I think that's a great opening line, but, but this is my absolute all-time favorite opening line from a book. Dwayne was in the hot tub shooting at his new doghouse with a 44 Magnum. <laughs> you had me at hot tub and 44 Magnum. I was just like, I could take you to the exact spot in Barnes & Noble where I was standing over 25 years ago when I read that opening line. I went... I'm buying that book. I want to know. I mean, think about it. Why is he sitting in the hot tub shooting a pistol? Is he alone in the hot tub? And and probably the greatest question of all, where's the dog? (laughs) You know, every single one of us 
who has ever encountered the Bible has to decide whether or not we're going to buy the book. You, you, you have to make a choice when it comes to the Bible about whether or not you're going to buy the book. And this choice really has nothing to do with whether or not we're going to plop down our hard-earned dollars and buy an actual copy of the book or even whether or not we're going to download it for free onto our phones or our iPads or anything else. But we all have to choose whether or not we're going to buy the book, the Bible, whether we're going to buy into it as the Word of God. Are we going to buy that this book is a divinely devised document that God has given to direct and sometimes course correct our lives that we can rely on, that we can depend upon, that we can build our lives around? And for us, as we continue this series that we started last week in virtual reality, I really believe that this message is actually kind of the pivot point of the whole series. This is, this is the fulcrum upon which this whole conversation about reality and truth and ultimate truth actually hinges. Because the fact of the matter is, in God's economy, in the, the gospel equation of life, the Bible is the critical component. It is the vehicle for the words of Jesus, for the life of Jesus, for what we believe about Christ. And so we have to come to grips and we have to decide personally whether or not we actually buy the book. And this is a really tough decision for a lot of us because we all kind of come to the book of the Bible with some presuppositions, some, some predispositions, and maybe some, some preconceived notions that maybe are accurate, maybe are not. But it's important for us to understand what do we do with the Bible. So I want to just invite you right now with, with passion and enthusiasm, tell your neighbor, buy the book. Now, the book of the Bible is a fascinating document just on its surface. No matter what you believe or whether or not you buy the book, it is an incredible document. It is far and away the single greatest seller of all time, not even close to second place. It is a book that is comprised of 66 different books compiled together, written across 5,000 years by over 40 authors, 66 books, an Old Testament and a New Testament. And if you, if you think about the Testament idea, that, that really means a covenant. So the Old Testament on one hand is prior to Christ. The New Covenant, the New Testament, is what happened when Jesus entered the picture in human form. And the New Covenant fulfills the old covenant brings it into its ultimate fruition in the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus. But, but the, the Bible is one of those things that we have to begin to, to get our minds around. And, and it's important, I think, as we have this conversation to make sure that you understand the Bible doesn't mean that you have to check your brain at the door. As a matter of fact, the Bible requires that we bring our brain that we bring it with everything that we've got, that we're willing to do the legwork intellectually, academically to a certain degree, but also emotionally and spiritually that a lot of people will not do. A lot of people discount the Bible by, you know, they parrot trite cliches that they've heard from other people, but they've never done the homework. They've never done the legwork themselves on what the Bible is really and truly all about. 
in the book of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young pastoral protege, Timothy, and he's reminding Timothy that as you pastor this church, as you figure out what's going to happen in this church and how you're going to pastor and shepherd and lead this flock that God has entrusted to you, don't forget your roots. He says, Timothy, I want you to remember what was instilled in you as a child through your mother and your grandmother. I want you to remember what I gave to you, what I taught you. Remember when I laid hands on you and you were called out as a pastor. Remember all of those things. But it's within this reminder of his roots that that Paul says something really, really profound about the Bible. I want you to look in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3, the Bible says this. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, now, you have been taught You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they, they've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. So these Scriptures are really important. It's not just something you learned as a child, but it makes an eternal difference because you heard them, you received the Word, and you came to faith in Christ. And then verse 16, all Scripture, say all. All, all Scripture is inspired by God. And is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So Paul makes a really profound claim about scripture here. And and it helps us to understand Every bit of the Bible. When he says that all scripture is God breathed, it's inspired by God. And and it's important for us to understand when he says it's inspired by God, that doesn't mean like like an artist is inspired to create a great work of art, like a songwriter is inspired and they they write, you know, me and Bobby McGee and the whole world. That's that's an inspiration. I'm reading a, a biography right now of Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci was a fascinating cat and was incredible but da vinci would would vacillate between disciplines he would be in one minute drawing anatomy but at the same time he would be studying how the muscles move within the human body da vinci dissected multiple human bodies to see how muscles all connected within the body so that his paintings could convey motion so you had artistry, anatomy. He was an engineer. He was a military scientist, always dreaming up weapons that that his patrons could use in their fight to maintain and withhold power. But but Da Vinci, you know, Da Vinci was the one who gave us the Last Supper, that, that incredible mural of Jesus and his disciples. It was Da Vinci who gave us the Mona Lisa. Is she smiling or not? The Mona Lisa. When No matter where you move in the room in the Louvre, her eyes follow you. It's like an old Scooby-Doo painting or something. It's kind of spooky. (laughs) But you look at da Vinci's artwork and we would say he was inspired. But when the Apostle Paul chose this word, it's not inspiration like an artist. It, It means literally in the original language, God breathed. God breathed. These word, this message, this word, this truth through human authors, to be sure, flawed human beings like you and me. But at the same time, because he is God, 
he could protect this inspiration. He could protect this communication and make sure that what was communicated was what he intended to be communicated. And then as it's been handed down through the generations and through the centuries and now millennia, he could protect the translation of it so that we could know all Scripture. Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed. And whether or not you buy the book really kind of hinges on the opening lines of this book. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there is an entire semester of systematic theology packed into that one verse. There, There are sermon series to be had within that one verse. In the beginning. So that means at the beginning of of human existence, God created. At the beginning of everything that is in this world, God was already there. That that means that God is eternal. We we know that he has no end. He He will live forever. But that also means that he had no beginning. And just by way of kind of sharing a moment with you here, the fact that God has no beginning, for me personally... I can, I can wrap my brain around no ending. That, that's, that's out there for me, but I, I can kind of get there. But to think about something or someone that had no beginning whatsoever, I just, I, it fries a circuit in me. But that's, that's okay because he's an infinite God. He's an eternal God, and I am a finite, temporal human being. And so it's okay that part of his makeup and his character and who he is is beyond my capacity to to fully grasp it or understand it in the beginning god created that means that every single thing that you and i see that we experience that we taste that we that we hear that we touch that we feel all of it all of it is the result of god's initiative that he is the prime mover In all the universe, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that flowed out of that moment, that that's who he is. And if he is God and I am not, then he certainly has the capacity to inspire, to to breathe his word to people so that he can communicate with us. And in that breathing, in that inspiring He invites us to buy the book. He invites us to buy into it and to to live it out through our lives. But you know, the fact of the matter is, living this thing out is a challenge. Living it out is, is really, it's not necessarily complicated, but neither is it easy. And a lot of us don't necessarily buy the book. A lot of us maybe believe that some of it is true or that it's got some nice statements and proverbs but I, you know I, I can't buy into the whole thing and i think it's important for us to, to recognize maybe three primary not the only by any stretch but three primary reasons we don't buy the book the bible number one i think a lot of times we don't buy the book because we choose normal over non-conformity what i mean by that is we know that it's not normal, that the rest of the world does not buy the validity or the authority of the Bible. And so if we were to adopt 
that, that perspective that it is the Word of God, all of it inspired by God, then we know intuitively that that's going to kind of leave us on the outside looking in, maybe socially, that, that people would look at us differently if they knew that we really believed everything that's in it. Or that we would be on the outside looking in, maybe intellectually to some people who don't understand that we've done the homework, we've done the legwork, and we actually know why it's reliable. So, so we choose normal over nonconformity. Sometimes we choose... We choose our gut over God. We, we, we believe that the Bible is God's word, but man, we, we go with our gut. We, we say, man, I, I got to be true to myself, man. I got I to gotta live my life authentically. And, and I understand where that comes from. But how many of us in the room, let me, let me just ask, this is family here, so it'll stay right here. How many of you know that, that our gut is fallible? How many of you have a fallible gut? Have you ever gone with your gut and your gut was just wrong? Man, I've too many times to count. But when we choose God over gut, he is never wrong, ever. His track record is spotless. And, and like I said, there are three reasons. The third reason, I, I, as I was thinking about this, I, I don't think you can escape this. Sometimes the fact of the matter is we just choose rebellion over restoration. We choose to rebel against what we know God has said leads to the restoration of the life he created us for. But man, sometimes we just, we, we turn our back on that. We go, look, I, I know this is wrong, but I want to. I, I just, sometimes we just choose to do what we know is wrong because it's just in the moment, it's more fun. I know you're trying not to nod and nobody's going to say amen, but Am I the only one who's ever, I mean, how many of you have ever chosen rebellion over restoration? Let me just thank you for raising your hand. Those of you not raising your hand, you're choosing rebellion over restoration (laughs) right now. But we do. We do. And I would suggest to you that most people, most people's real argument with the Bible is not about validity. It's about authority. Most of the times... That people discount the significance, the weight of Scripture. It's, it's a lot of times because we don't want to do what it says. And I actually believe that sometimes we choose numbers 1, 2, and 3 because we just don't know. We, we've never been taught how valid, how significant the Bible really is historically and linguistically. I think for those of us who go by the name of Christ follower, we need to be better equipped to have this conversation, to be able to say, no, I've, I've done the homework. I've done the legwork, which means, by the way, those of us who are in leadership in the church, we need to do a better job of equipping. And over time, we've, we've shared from time to time a, a chart that I think helps us to understand the historical and the linguistic validity of scripture. And what, what historians refer to as the historicity. And I want to share this with you right now and compare the Bible with other ancient texts. I'm talking about Homer. How many of you read the Odyssey in high school or middle school? I don't mean you were assigned it. How many actually read it? Okay, hands are dropping like flies. Homer, Caesar, who wrote histories of Roman wars, Tacitus. Tacitus was a... Roman historian, he was a Roman senator who wrote histories of Rome. And then in the last column, in the last row, is the New Testament. Now, Homer 
was writing around the dates of the 9th century B.C. So about 800 years before Jesus walked on the earth, as far as the earliest copies of the Odyssey or the Iliad, we can't find them. We, we know that they're out there somewhere. It's come down through history and through antiquity, but we don't have them actually to date back to when they were written. The number of existing copies that we have of Homer's writings, 643. The accuracy of the copies for Homer amongst themselves is about 95%. So when you are assigned Homer or the Iliad and the teacher says this was written by I'm sorry, the Iliad or the Odyssey. This was written by Homer about 850 years before the Common Era or before Christ. Then nobody bats an eye at whether or not that's valid. Nobody says, wait a minute, I don't think his name was actually Odysseus. Or were they really in Troy? And was it actually a Trojan horse at all? Or was it just a metaphor? Nobody even asked those questions. But look, this is the reality of Homer. Caesar, my man. Caesar was writing around the first century B.C., about 100 years before Christ. The earliest copies we have available were actually written down almost 1,000 years after Caesar wrote the original in 900 A.D. The existing copies that we have of Caesar's writings, 10. There are 10 of them. But again, if the Latin teacher or the history teacher assigns these things, we don't even bat an eye. The accuracy of these copies amongst themselves, there's so few copies that the accuracy is really, really about impossible to discern. But that's the facts on Caesar. Now, Tacitus, Tacitus was writing around 100 A.D. or so, 100 years after the birth of Christ. The earliest copies that we have from Tacitus date to 1100 A.D. So again, a thousand years passed between when Tacitus actually wrote these histories of Rome and the earliest copies that we have available to compare, to look at in our hands. The existing copies that we have of Tacitus's are 20. So we've got twice as many with Tacitus as we did with Caesar. And the accuracy of those copies, again, with such a small sample size, you, you can't really establish consistency amongst them all. Now, the New Testament, of course, was written between 50 and 100 A.D., Within 100 years of the actual events themselves, 50 to 100 A.D., the earliest copies that we have of that date to 130 A.D. So within 30 years of the completion of the New Testament, we've got copies that correspond to what was originally written. The number of existing copies of the New Testament, over 5,000. Over 5,000. Thousand. That is what historians and linguists would call an academic smackdown of Homer, Caesar, and Tacitus. 5,000 existing copies of the New Testament that have an accuracy reading of greater than 99% amongst all of them. So if you compare all 5,000 fragments and parchments that we have available from the New Testament... They maintain an accuracy of wording and linguist and certainly message and overall story of greater than 99%. The Bible is so historically and linguistically reliable. Now, these are 
irrefutable facts that, that are out there. They're, they're there for the taking. And, there's a, and that's the reason I share them with you today. But we cannot discount the fact that to buy the book, the Bible, to buy that book is not simply a matter of intellect or academics. That there is absolutely a spiritual component to buying the book, the Bible. To establishing that as the, the virtual reality goggles through which I will view every single part of my life in this world and my relationships and my work and my family and my money and my sexuality and everything. That my virtual reality is dependent upon what God says and not what I make up on my own or maybe hear from somebody else. That there's this spiritual component to it. I want you to look in Hebrews chapter number 4. The Bible says this, Hebrews chapter 4, and I think as you're looking up Hebrews 4 that this verse probably gets to the heart of the matter about why we discount Scripture more than anything else. It says in verse 12, Hebrews chapter 4, for the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God and everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. It's that accountability factor that the Bible brings in more than any other book that has ever, ever been written, been published. It's, it's what it reveals inside of us. That, that a lot of times, we, man, we would love to keep hidden. We would love to keep those things closed. But the Bible, the Bible reveals it. it. It exposes it. Mark Twain was the great American author. I love what Mark Twain said about the Bible. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. <laughs> I get that. I really and truly get it. Psalm chapter 19 is a fascinating chapter within the Bible. And I came across it this week again and saw it in a completely new light given the idea of virtual reality and how we look at things. And Psalm chapter 19 starts out, like a lot of the Psalms, as just a song of praise. This is King David writing this psalm, and, and it starts out by talking about how nature, just, just the observed, created order, declares the glory of God. All you got to do is step outside and, and watch a sunset or, or listen to a child laugh or the stars in the sky, and it, and it goes on. It's kind of like our own How Great Thou Art, the, the classic hymn of the church. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Just throughout the universe displayed. I, I realize how great you are. And this is how Psalm 19 starts out. Look at verses 1 and 6. It says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Verse 6, the sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. Some translations say its warmth fills the earth. This is, this is how the sun operates. We need the sun for light and for warmth and for life. 
But then all of a sudden, verse 6 ends, and then verse 7, it's like a, you almost can hear a record scratch in the original song. Verse 7, look at what it says. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living so the sun is out there in the sky and it, and it declares the glory of God and it brings light and warmth. But the psalmist, David, is using a poetic device here and he says, just like the sun fills the earth with light and warmth and life, so the word of God, the scripture, fills our lives with light and warmth and life. That there's something in the scriptures that is spiritually indefinable, but absolutely undeniable. And for me, this kind of just came home in a powerful way about three years ago. It was the first time I'd ever been to Israel. We, Julie and I got to go with a group from our church. And, and this trip is an amazing journey, both spiritually and physically, to, to walk where Jesus walked, to, to sail on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus sailed on. to to step down into the waters of the Jordan River and be baptized where Jesus was baptized and and where he spent his childhood in Nazareth and then to go into Jerusalem, the the city of of God where Jesus concluded his ministry and was put on trial before Pilate and crucified just outside the city walls in the first century. It's an amazing thing. But the last day of our tour... We got up and we went to the Israel Museum there in Jerusalem. And at the Israel Museum, there's this massive scale model of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' life here on earth 2,000 years ago. And we spent some time with our guide kind of walking around the perimeter of the walls and she would point out where we had been and what we had seen and what happened there. And kind of seeing this scale model kind of brought the whole trip and, and put a really nice bow on it. And we we're like, oh, okay, yeah, now it's all kind of, because you take in so much information, it can be kind of overwhelming. And when we finished that part of the tour, she said, now I'm going to turn you loose. But, but I wanted to make sure that you do not miss the shrine of the book. It's that, it's that white building over there. And the shrine of the book is this, this huge white building that, that its, it's architecture resembles the top of the box that, that, Jewish families carry their Torah or the, the Jewish scriptures in. And it, the best way to describe it is it looks like a huge white onion. And there's, there's always water pouring over this, this building. And she said, within the, the shrine of the book, you will find an incredible museum to the scrolls of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered back in the 1940s, just after World War II. A couple of, of Bedouin shepherds were, were tending their flocks and, and found these caves where they discovered these incredible clay pots that were kind of tall and narrow, and they had been encased in mud for about 2,000 years, they later discovered. But what, they, what the scholars and the archaeologists found was when they began to open these pots, because it had been kind of air-sealed for over 2,000 years inside, there were scrolls of the book of Isaiah. And these scrolls were massive Massive pieces of, of continuous 
writing where the book of Isaiah had been copied by hand in Hebrew. And I'm doing this for your sake. It's, it's right to left in the Hebrew. Now, obviously, when they, when they realized what they had, this was the most significant archaeological, historical, biblical find ever. And as I said, it, it dates to about 100 between 50 and 100 A.D., there was a, a small community uh, known as the Essenes there in Qumran that, that went out to kind of be removed from the world so they wouldn't be tainted by it. And it was there that they copied the book of Isaiah. But the book of Isaiah had been written 700 years before. And as you enter the, the book of the shrine, the shrine of the book, excuse me, as you enter the shrine of the book, it's a, it's a typical, you know, modern museum. They've got archaeological finds like the the sandals that were worn there at Qumran, the tools that they used there at Qumran, pictures of the archaeologists doing the work and, you know, scraping and restoring and and everything that they had found. And and you go through this long hallway and corridor, but then all of a sudden you you step into this room and at the center of this room that's about the size of our downstairs here, there's this massive lucite drum on the inside of it is a facsimile copy of the book of Isaiah. And it, and it literally fills this room. And I, I wasn't ready for this. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared. But when I walked into that room and, I, and I, saw, I saw the book of Isaiah that had been written about 700 years before Jesus even walked on the earth as a human being. And this, this facsimile copy of what had actually been written right around the time that Jesus walked on the earth and, and maybe probably just a little bit after that. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I thought about, I thought about the book of Isaiah and, and the prophecies that Isaiah made about Jesus 700 years before he was alive. And I thought that Isaiah wrote down that he'd be born of a virgin, that he was an heir to the throne of David, that that he would be beaten, that he would be rejected, that he would be counselor, prince of peace, that he would be silent before his accusers, that he would be the blood atonement, that he would be our substitute, that he would die with sinners, that he would have a Galilean ministry, that he would return to judge the world with truth and justice, And I I walked into this room, and I I saw it there. I I saw the the room. And I I was completely overwhelmed. Because when I saw the book of Isaiah that describes Jesus in such detail, 700 years before it became a reality, I just saw the words, the word became flesh. The word became flesh, and it is because of Jesus that we can depend upon his word, that the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word created everything that has ever been, and he is the word become flesh. This is our God. And I, and I just, I, it was just overwhelming to me, and you, you're probably picking up on that a little bit right now. Do not, do not buy the book because of my experience. My experience is real and I'll, 
we'll, we'll dance over that. That's okay. But I want to challenge you and encourage you to do the homework yourself. Don't listen to, to people on TV who, who haven't done any homework. They're just kind of spouting trite cliches. And you do the homework. Do the legwork. And never forget that as much as we trust Scripture, as much as we rely on it for light, for warmth, for life, we don't worship the book. We buy the book, but we worship the author. We worship the Word become flesh. We worship Him. And it is because of Him that we depend upon His Word. It's because of Him that truth, that truth is knowable relationally. We, we can know the truth. We can know Him. We don't, we don't always handle it perfectly. Our understanding is limited and finite to be sure, but we can know that He is the truth, that truth is knowable, that it's doable. We can live this out. We, we can... We can make it a reality day in and day out. And as Jesus said, the truth is liberating. You are really my disciples if you hold to my teaching, if you do it. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is because of Jesus it is because of Jesus and always about him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. For just a moment. And in this moment, if you've never chosen to follow Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. To choose to trust Him more than yourself. To choose restoration over rebellion. To choose nonconformity over normal. To choose to follow Christ. Responding to His initiative, it's, it's His amazing grace that, that wakes us up to our need for him. But once that happens, we have the privilege and the honor to respond to that awakening and to follow him deliberately and intentionally. If you've never done that and you would like to, then we want to just give you the opportunity to do that right now, just right where you're sitting, to pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment. Just to say, Jesus, just silently talk to him right now. Just say, Jesus, I need you. And I choose to depend upon you more than myself. I confess my sin to you. Holding nothing back, hiding nothing, because nothing's hidden from you anyway. And Jesus, as I confess that sin, I claim your forgiveness. I accept it 
And I choose to follow you from this moment forward. I commit my life to you. And I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, for just a moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. But if that was your prayer, then that's a big deal. That's your word became flesh moment, personally, where the living word of God, Jesus, became a part of who you are. It's the most significant moment of your life. And so, as a church, we want to help. We want to we come alongside you, with you. The church is also the Word become flesh. It's the body of Christ. So now you're a part of that. And so we ask you, if you would, just do a couple of things so we can begin this process with you. If you would, take the program that you got when you came in today, and inside you'll find there a Connect card. And I want to ask you to please just fill that out, again, so that we can help. So that we can come alongside and and be a family with you. You'll notice about halfway down on that card is a place there to indicate I committed my life to Christ today. Once you've completed that card, you can tear it off at the perforation and just hand it to an usher on your way out the door. One of our one of our greeters who wear the really cool blue t-shirts, just hand it to them. Like I said, so that we can help in this process. But then second of all, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, I want to ask you to just to raise your hand. If that was your prayer and you committed your life to Christ and began that relationship right here, right now, would you just raise your hand up high over your head? And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, it's, it's a physical representation of a spiritual commitment. And it, and it helps to, to stamp that moment in your life, to know that it's real, that God did it and you responded. But second of all, it stamps this moment in the life of this church because for us there is nothing more important than that. Because now you're a part of the family. And so as a family, we celebrate that with you. We honor that. And you can go ahead and put your hands down, but don't mind us if we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.